John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I am Joe McCormick. And today we're going to do another Baby Looked at Me style topic. Uh, My daughter is 10 months old now. And after I came back on the show, uh, after I came back from parental leave, I think I, I warned you all that there would probably be plenty of Baby Looked at Me style content in the coming years. And, and this is one that has really harnessed my brain. Uh, it, it starts with an observation that I'm sure anybody out there who has or has ever had young children will recognize. And it is uh, what one might call anomalous adhesion syndrome, the sudden realization that an unusual surface in your house has become sticky and you don't know how it happened. I don't know if this is one of the anomalous phenomena that we need to resort to the uh, proof of aliens confirmed column for, uh, but uh, I don't know. We'll see. In, in my case, it starts with my child eating like a frozen fruit smoothie pop. Rob, I don't know if you ever made these in, in your house, but it's it's a nice little treat. You know, you like blend up some strawberries and bananas and stuff and freeze it in the freezer with a little handle. Yeah, yeah. We, um, we, we have done this uh, plenty of times. I think we've stopped using them, though, but they're still in the freezer. Uh, I don't know when, when we filled the mold last, but they're still awaiting use. Well, so you give one of these to a baby, uh, you know, she loves it, but no surprise that her face gets sticky. You you would Mm -hmm. expect that. Her hands get sticky. The floor around her gets sticky. But then later, maybe you're like pulling a book off the shelf and you notice that the underside of the bookshelf is sticky. How did that happen? Uh, We could insert the the X-Files music sting here. But uh, I do have a hypothesis. At first, it was a little more perplexing, but I think maybe it's that the adults in the house are acting as an intermediary or as a vector of stickiness from one surface to the other. So like during frantic moments of dealing with the baby, an adult is maybe uh, getting stickiness from the baby on themselves and then touching, you know, the bookshelf or the refrigerator door handle or, or whatever it is. 
Hmm. Well, that's that's pretty good. I mean, on one hand, you could just say sticky baby touches everything and then therefore everything is sticky. I still think that's a solid hypothesis. Um, this transference of sticky, this also holds well, holds up well, I think. Another possibility is heightened stickiness, thanks to baby, results in heightened awareness of stickiness. Mm. And therefore, you're just more inclined to notice stickiness now that there is a an enhanced stickiness culprit in the household. Uh, you know, normally I would say that kind of explanation makes a lot of sense, but I think for me, psychologically, it's the exact opposite. I used to have much more awareness of the ickiness of stickiness, but now having a baby, I am, I think I am somewhat desensitized to the, to the icky of the sticky. Hmm. hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, we still seem like, I still feel like we have, um, enhanced stickiness in the household, um, even at this point. And I think part of it too, is just like you get a third body in the house or, you know, in, in larger family households, you know, multiple more bodies. That's more folks coming in and out of the kitchen. That's more folks handling food. Yeah. There's just kind of this exponential swell of stickiness. And then how do you handle it? Do you just become desensitized to it or do you try and keep up the battle against the sticky? Uh, keeping up the battle is really a slog because another part of, uh, you know, a baby learning to appreciate solid foods is a lot of throwing foods on the floor, a lot of, mm -hmm. of the floor. How did people cope with, uh, with, with carpets, wall-to-wall -wall carpets and uh, children in the past? I don't know. Oh, I don't want to think about it. But anyway, so this got my brain cranking on the subject of stickiness. And I wanted to kick off a series today exploring the concept of stickiness in its many wonderful, terrible, and mysterious forms. Uh, so one place I was kind of foiled right at the beginning is uh, I was like, okay, is there just an answer to the question, sort of a chemistry or material science question, what makes a sticky thing sticky? Uh, I think it turns out this is one of those questions that seems like it should have a very simple answer, but in fact is rather difficult and complex because while stickiness seems like one phenomenon to us, you know, we have a single word for it, it's actually a lot of different things. Uh, and I've been reading a book that addresses this a bit. Uh, it's a book called Sticky, The Secret Science of Surfaces by Laurie Winkless from Bloomsbury 2023. So this is a, a new popular science book. It's not just about stickiness. It's also about slipperiness and generally about surface interactions and the science thereof. Uh, it's by this author named Laurie Winkless. And for everybody who says that, uh, you know, book, book jacket blurbs don't matter, I will say this is a case where I was swayed. I was convinced to go ahead and buy this one because it had a positive blurb from Mary Roach. Oh, yeah. Friend of the show, Mary Roach. Always, uh, always a ringing endorsement. But anyway, in the introduction to her book, Winkless reveals something that kind of surprised me, which is that despite the fact that stickiness and slipperiness are essential and probably universally recognized properties of substances in the world around us, you know, they have crucial and perfectly well understood everyday meanings. Uh, to quote from her, her introduction, the words sticky and slippery are also not true materials properties in the way that, say, hardness and thermal conductivity are. They have no agreed-upon scientific definitions and no specific metrics that can be used to quantify or compare them. Now, of course, stickiness and slipperiness do involve a number of well-understood and mathematically well-defined physics concepts like uh, friction, viscosity, elasticity, uh, and so forth. Apparently, 
you know, they in themselves are kind of more vague and complex concepts, and they describe a number of different phenomena with different causes. So when you say that glue is sticky and Velcro is sticky and sugar syrup is sticky, you're using one word uh, to describe a similar property these substances have, but the explanations can go in a variety of different directions. Uh, so this exploration of stickiness over the next few episodes will not be a single straight highway, but a, but a bunch of diverging roads. Though I think because we started with the example of uh, food-based substances getting on things and making them sticky, I, I think it might be good to stick to food for a bit. Let's stick to the food for a bit, yes. Because, yeah, stickiness is not always a byproduct of misplaced or spilled food treats. Sometimes it's a vital part of the culinary experience. Um, and, and as we'll get into, this might not be as obvious to all listeners out there when we talk about, oh, don't you love it when the food is sticky? Don't you love it when the food is chewy? Um, it's, there, there's actually some, uh, some rather stark differences um, that can be observed uh, across different food cultures. Now, I'm sure when a lot of people think sticky foods, you immediately think sugar syrups and candy. But we're going to go in a slightly different direction here. That's right, because you know, most chewy and sticky candies, I mean, yeah, that's the, the sweet dimension. But um, the example we're going to bring up here uh, is it can be enjoyed sweet. It can be enjoyed savory. Um, I'm talking about the sticky food par excellence, sticky rice. Um, so uh, you may have encountered sticky rice in different forms. I mean, there's like bamboo sticky rice. There's, oh, there's mango sticky rice, which uh, I think is is absolutely amazing. Um, and, you know, it's going to be different depending on, you know, exactly what sort of mango you, you have on there. But um, you can, and sticky rice can be enjoyed with savory foods. It can be enjoyed with sweet foods. It's uh, just absolutely tremendous. Now, when you say the phrase sticky rice, you could just be talking about rice and using sticky as an adjective to describe the rice, because rice is, as we'll discuss, different, different varieties of rice are of varying levels of stickiness. But there is also a type of rice that is specifically sticky rice. That's right. Specifically, it's so Oriza sativa variant glutinosa, uh, also known as glutinous rice. But don't let the, the name deceive you. It doesn't actually contain gluten. It is merely glutinous in that it is glue-like or sticky. Also sometimes called sweet rice. Uh, the last time I bought it at uh, one of our local Asian markets, it was just in a bag that had sweet rice written on it. Yeah. And there are numer numerous cultivars of this particular type of rice, and it's, it's grown throughout Southeast and East Asia. Uh, this, in the, among the cultivars, you have um, uh, mochigami, which is key to Japanese mochi, which is uh, also one of life's great pleasures. Now, where it gets interesting, because ultimately the, the question arises, where does the stickiness come in? What makes it stickier? Uh, so typical rice contains two starches, amylose and amylopectin. But sticky rice lacks amylose, and its absence leads to this sticky quality that we have. This is due to a mutation in its waxy gene. DNA evidence suggests that it emerged a single time somewhere in Southeast Asia, and the resulting stickiness was seemingly liked, preserved, uh, encouraged. You know, the, we see this story time and time again uh, throughout the, the history of, of domesticated and cultivated foods where something changes in the particular plant and we realize, oh, this is even better than before. Mm, yeah, I can see that. And in another way, I kind of think about a glutinous rice as uh, 
blasting off of one end of the rice experience spectrum. So just from personal experience in the kitchen, I, uh, I'm i familiar with the properties of different kinds of cooked rice. And there is a general pattern that longer grain rice varieties tend to be firmer and less sticky. So they stick to each other less. So you think of the example of basmati rice uh, used in a lot of Indian cuisine and other long grain rices. They tend to have grains that separate from one another more easily and remain firmer after cooking. So these rices kind of flake when you toss them with a fork after cooking. Rob, you know that experience? Yeah, yeah. And of course, this becomes vital, too, if you're going to be potentially eating with chopsticks. You know, what kind of rices are going to clump together and which ones are going to fall apart? Yes, these would be more difficult to eat with chopsticks, though, you know, with enough practice, you can eat almost anything with chopsticks. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, especially if you got some kind of uh, saucy wet thing to kind of stick it together. But yes, the 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 grains that separate from one another more easily like this, the long grain rices are more difficult. Uh, meanwhile, shorter grain rices tend to be softer in texture and stickier. They stick to each other and stick to other things more easily. So you can think of short grain rices like, uh, you know, arboreal rice, uh, mm-hmm. which is commonly used in risotto, or short grain sushi rice, which is tender and sticks together nicely to, you know, make into sushi rolls or other multiple forms. And this correlates to what you mentioned, Rob, that changing ratio of amylose to amylopectin. Longer grain rices tend to have more amylose, and shorter grain rices tend to have less. Glutinous rice goes even beyond the normal short grain rice. It has especially low amylose content and high amylopectin, which causes the rice to, once it's cooked, clump together for molding purposes in cooking and retain a really sticky adhesion between grains while eating. It's also worth noting that sticky rice is used to create a number of secondary food products, like Shaoxing wine, which is used in a lot of Chinese cooking, is usually made by fermenting a uh, mash containing glutinous rice in particular. Uh, Japanese sake is a, a, a alcoholic beverage that I think is also often made with uh, fermented sticky rice. But I was getting curious about what actually makes the difference? Why do these different ratios of amylose and amylopectin change the stickiness and the texture of rice? Like what's happening at the uh, sort of at the molecular level? And so I was looking all over for a good explanation that I could actually understand of, of what exactly is happening here. And eventually I found a, a great article about this by an author named Guy Crosby, who writes about food science for America's Test Kitchen and teaches at the Department of Nutrition at uh, Harvard's Chan School of Public Health. And so here's the way Crosby explained it. Uh, you got to start off by understanding what starch is. Starch is a carbohydrate that is found in lots of foods, and it is the natural way that plants store energy, store food energy that they make via the process of photosynthesis. And so this, this is kind of an interesting connection to like when, you, when you're thinking about the food you eat, think all the way back to like how that energy entered the planet Earth in the form of sunlight uh, and turned into your, uh, the, the food on your plate. So, of course, plants make their own food by way of photosynthesis, which means they're forcing a chemical reaction between carbon dioxide in the air and water. And that chemical reaction is powered by the energy from sunlight. And what it produces is glucose or sugar, carbohydrates, as a product. That's the food for the plant. And then oxygen as a byproduct. 
Plants then convert the sugar they produce through photosynthesis into starch, which is a polymer. It's this huge macromolecule that is composed of smaller individual molecules all linked together in a big chain. And uh, starch is a natural form of high-density energy storage. It's a way to squeeze a ton of chemical energy into a very compact space. All of this sugar is packed into one tight, gigantic molecular structure. This starch structure is known as a granule. So sometimes you can actually look up like uh, microscopic imagery of starch granules, and they have uh, interesting little, uh, little, like if you look at a cross section of one, sometimes they'll have these little rings, kind of like the rings of a tree. That's interesting. <laughs> and when plants make these uh, starch granules, they, they are storing the glucose in the starch in two distinct molecular forms. One is amylose and one is amylopectin, uh, these two starches we mentioned earlier. Amylose is a linear molecule, which is smaller in size, and amylopectin is a larger molecule with a kind of branching out structure. And these amylose and amylopectin uh, molecules are organized into these tight structures called granules. And then inside the granules, there are layers with a different makeup. So there are these uh, like tightly crystallized, highly structured, organized layers. And then there are more amorphous, non-crystallized layers with more uh, random arrangements of uh, amylose molecules and amylopectin in a kind of non-regular pattern. So what, what, why does that matter? Well, you got to look at what happens when starch granules get cooked in hot water. When the starch granules are in water above a certain temperature, that water starts to penetrate the starch granule, causing it to swell. So you can imagine water molecules like soaking into something, I don't know, like a couch cushion or something, and making it like swell up. Uh, and that makes it swell up kind of like a balloon in a way. And as these starch granules in hot water get hotter and hotter, they eventually reach a breaking point. Their, their uh, maximum volume and viscosity, as Crosby says, and this is called their gelatinization temperature. And eventually what happens is they burst and they just like leak pieces of, of starch molecules all out into the water around them. Exactly what temperature this is depends on the type of starch, uh, e.g. what plant it comes from. And a key factor is the ratio of amylose to amylopectin in each starch granule. So the more amylose there is in the starch, the more the swelling of the granule in the presence of hot water is delayed. So you can kind of think of amylose as an armor against gelatinization. The more amylose, the higher the gelatinization temperature, and the more the granule fights off the gelatinization process. And then Crosby uses the example of rice uh, to show this process. He writes, quote, long grain rice contains about 22 to 28 percent amylose by weight. Medium grains contain about 16 to 18 percent by weight, while short grain contains less than 15 percent to almost no amylose. Varieties of long grain rice have a gelatinization temperature above 158 degrees Fahrenheit or 70 degrees Celsius, while waxy short grain rice gelatinizes at about 144 degrees Fahrenheit or 62 degrees Celsius. So the temperature in the short grain rice is the temperature for gelatinization is lower, meaning it happens more easily. So the granules of starch in short grain rice with lower amylose 
Romulo's content reach their gelatinization point and burst at a lower temperature. And when the starch granules burst, they flood the surrounding water with disorganized small chunks of amylose and amylopectin, of just little bits of starch. Uh, Crosby writes, quote, creating an infinite network of entwined molecules that trap water and thicken to a gel on cooling. So this mesh of loose, uncrystallized starch molecules thickens the water and causes the rice grains to stick together. And you can actually observe a similar principle when you use starch to thicken other foods, thicken like a soup or a sauce. If you've ever used a roux based on wheat flour or a cornstarch slurry, it's the same principle. Cornstarch, flour, potato starch, and so forth all undergo the same gelatinization process, though at different temperatures and rates. Uh, so the starch granules will swell up and eventually burst in hot water. And this has the effect of increasing the viscosity, meaning the thickness, and to the stickiness of the water-based soup or sauce. So that is how the lower ratio of amylose to amylopectin makes the cooked rice sticky. Ah, fascinating, fascinating. So all that's going on at the, uh, at the micro level and at the, the macro level, uh, you're just enjoying some, some sticky rice. Maybe a little sweet, maybe a little savory. It kind of depends on the particular dish. Um, I don't think we can properly prepare you for, for the stickiness um, just in this audio podcast is something you need to, to fully, uh, to fully appreciate. You need to try it for yourself. Um, but, um, it's, it's generally like when I've had it oftentimes, not only could you eat it with a, with a pair of chopsticks, you could eat it with like one of those little, um, uh, like wooden planks that comes that used to come on the top of ice creams. You could eat it with a popsicle stick, you know? Mm-hmm. Sticky rice is often used for a, like molding purposes, so you can wrap it around foods, or you can just use it as sort of like forming little uh, little bits of it or paddles of it in your hand and scoop up foods with it. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, 
feels like or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. But there's another thing about the the texture of uh, sticky rice, which is that uh, I think it's because of this gelatinization that it has a, a similar thing going on that like risotto has, which is a, a creaminess. Mm, yeah, yeah, I can definitely take on this creamy, gooey um, kind of um, uh, texture. Has this incredible mouth feel. Uh, it can make for yeah an overpoweringly good dessert, but again, also works very well in savory. Uh, and and is and plays a very important role in various uh, cuisines and various traditions, uh, especially I've uh, read in the um, culinary traditions of Laos in Laotian cooking, as pointed out by Mike Ives in a Taste of Sticky Rice, Laos's national dish. It can be steamed twice during the course of the day, uh, beginning first thing in the morning. So, like traditionally, sticky rice is something you make right away. Like this is how you start off your day. A third steaming, um, Ives writes, is said to just make it too chewy to eat at that point. But uh, the author points out that, quote, a hunk of sticky rice is a delicious bread-like dipping implement. So uh, I, I looked around at some other sources on this. And yeah, traditionally in Laotian cuisine, one rolls it up with one's fingers and then dips it into sauces, which yeah. is, uh, you know, is, is even a, a little bit different than other uses of sticky rice you might be more familiar with. One of the many great world food traditions of make your own utensils and then eat the utensil. Yeah, yeah. I've been to a, I think, I think I've only been to one Laotian restaurant a couple of times, and I don't remember enjoying the sticky rice like this. So now I want to, I, I really want to seek it out and have this experience. Anyway, the importance of sticky rice in uh, Laos goes well beyond just, uh, you know, how you start your day. It factors into Laotian Buddhist rites and traditions. We'll come back a little to a little bit uh, to this in just a, a few minutes here. Uh, but it also was apparently long sought after by monks because, uh, as, quote, as, as Ives writes, quote, it takes longer to digest than white rice does. It sates hunger for longer periods. 
Hmm. Uh, so I thought that was that was an interesting tidbit. So another reason to have it first thing in the morning. Um, now, we'll, you know, whether that actually, uh, how much of that is the actual like science of the digestion of sticky rice versus other varieties of rice, I don't know. But um, like, and I, I can't help but wonder too if there's some version of like food sticking to your ribs. If there's some sort of like idea of that um, mm. uh, uh, in uh, Laotian traditions as well, I'm not sure. Linguistic stickiness and so forth. Um, anyway, getting into the just sort of the history of rice and the possible like history of like when did sticky rice emerge? There, there are various dates you'll come across for, for some of this. So a lot of work has gone into like, well, when you know when do we see uh, this particular rice variety pop up? And what does genetic information tell us? Um, the domesticated species Orza sativa or Asian rice evolved starting approximately 9,000 years ago. I've read this according to Filipino-American biologist Michael um, Pruganan in 2010. I've also seen it written that uh, Asian Neolithic farmers are thought to have cultivated rice um, more than 11,000 years ago. There may be some wiggle room here, um, again, when you get down to exact dates and ideas about when particular um, uh, plant varieties emerged or were domesticated, etc. Now, in the study of rice genetics, and in particular sticky rice genetics, um, Perganen uh, has several different articles uh, credited um, uh, to him, and uh, working with Kenneth Olson for North Carolina State University back in 2002, uh, he set out to explore the origin of sticky rice, because ultimately no one knew exactly where it came from. Uh, you know, we, we could look to its importance in these various um, uh, culinary traditions, but, you know, we didn't have um, like hard genetic data, apparently. They pointed out that um, on one hand, you had a Laotian Buddhist claim that it emerged there 11,000 years ago. Meanwhile, Chinese folklore suggested that it existed 2,000 years ago and so forth. Now, I was intrigued by the, the, this, you know, mention of, uh, of the of folklore and mythology and, and so forth here. I was able to find more on Laotian rice myths, uh, particularly in the book uh, that he cites, Rice Legends in Mainland Southeast Asia by Berend J. Tierweil. Uh, and basically, you can find longer versions of this online, but um, the uh, basically you have this Laotian Buddhist origin story for sticky rice, and it concerns the rice goddess Nang Kosap, who is essentially not only a goddess of rice, but is rice incarnate. Whoa. Like her body is rice, her identity is rice, and uh, in you know we see this reflected in other um, the same idea in in other traditions, other mythologies, where you have some sort of vital food uh, crop that is personified in a given deity. Oh well, yeah, I mean, I think of the goddess Ceres, uh, C E R E S, whose name you see the connection to cereal, the, mm -hmm. the goddess of grain. Yeah, yeah, you see um, uh, similarities too to the importance of of maize um, in um, Mesoamerican traditions. Anyway, the interesting thing about uh, Nang Kosap here, uh, the thing I found really interesting, is that she has this relationship with humanity, and, and when the actions of humans upset her or offend her, she'll recede from our world. And of course, when this happens, uh, it results in famine. So there are at least two vital periods of divine famine in Laotian Buddhist traditions. The second being when an evil king hoards all the rice and then the rice stops growing elsewhere. And according to the to this story, after 320 years of this particular famine, a wise hermit finally offers to fix matters. And he does so by sacrificing the goddess, pulls her into pieces. And these each of these pieces would become one of the four main varieties of 
rice uh, that are uh, of, of special value in Laotian uh, cuisine, black rice, white rice, anum rice, and sticky rice. And it's said that she does not resist this. She just holds her breath and dies as she's divided into these pieces. But on top of this, there's this added level of prophecy. When Maitreya, the bodhisattva of the future, is born on this world, quote, all rice varieties will reunify to become the original rice. Whoa. Well, on one hand, I was going to say that is an apocalyptic prophecy of the future that I can get behind. But then on, but then the more I think about it, I'm like, wait, but I like all the different varieties of rice. <laughs> but you haven't tried the original rice, right? <laughs> oh, that's true. Uh, maybe, maybe it would be as good as all of them put together. <laughs> There, uh, there are, I, you know, I don't, didn't have time to get into it so much for this episode, but um, this particular source, this uh, book, uh, Rice Legends in Mainland Southeast Asia, it, um, you know, it also gets into these various other ideas con- and myths concerning rice about how rice used to be bigger. I think in some cases, like they're talking about back when rice was the size of like coconuts or something, you know. So, um, like the, you know, their grain was the wow. Yeah, I guess so. Um, and then there are various stories about, well, it's not as big as it used to be because it was cursed by a widow. Uh, and in some cases, like rice in general is lost and then found again. Uh, so uh, it looks like there's a, there's a lot of fascinating twists and turns in the sort of mythic history of rice. And you wonder about like the various uh, disasters that, um, that it speaks to, you know, times when rice crops were, were lost or people moved from one region to another and had to sort of refine or adapt their, their method of growing rice and so forth. Yeah, that's an interesting etiology. So anyway, back to the actual origins of rice as far as DNA evidence reveals. So back in 2001, uh, Perogannon's team found that sticky rice's genetic mutation maps to a single mutation on the genetic tree, suggesting that it occurred only once. Uh, they looked at uh, the geographic data for the rice DNA sequences and found that Southeast Asia was, in fact, the likely location of its emergence. So the, the picture we see of rice cultivation suddenly here is, you know, rice cultivation suddenly generates something new and exciting. Um, and, and it's something where people latch onto it. They're, they're like, okay, well, this is, this is different. Uh, I think we can do different things with this. Uh, and in this particular case, we're talking about, about chewiness. We're also talking about, you know, stickiness. But I guess once it's in your mouth, it's not about being sticky. It's about being chewy. And also in the Laotian example uh, about like rolling up the rice and dipping it, it also shows that like the stickier the rice and or chewier the rice, it opens up new ways of using it physically uh, mm-hmm. in your food. Like it's no longer has to be in the bowl. Well, now we can we can dip it in the bowl. Like you say, it becomes the utensil. Yeah, you can almost treat it more like uh, like a dough or something, except it's a dough that like is already cooked and ready to eat. It's as moldable as a dough, but it's already ready to go. Yeah, and like a Japanese mochi is just another example of, of this as well, like that chewiness, the things you can do with it. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. 
With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So why do we like chewy foods? Why would, would this chewy aspect of this rice, the sticky aspect of this rice, um, you know, cause it to be you know, picked up and, uh, and, and embraced and then cultivated? Well, I found an interesting article about this that, that uh, touches on some of the, you know, the, the, the differences between, uh, particularly between Eastern and Western culinary traditions. And this was a Bon Appetit article titled, Everyone Loves Crispy and Crunchy, But What About Chewy? This is from 2019 by author um, Elise Innominy. Um uh, My apologies if I got the pronunciation on that last name wrong. Uh, but it's a wonderful article, and she points out that in the modern West, Chewy may sometimes be associated with something that's underdone or overdone, you know, the result of poor cooking. You know, why is this steak so chewy? Or why is this other, uh, you know, I can't think of any other specific examples off the top of my head, but uh, this is chewy. Please take it back. Yeah, I mean, traditionally, like the way meats are uh, priced in American supermarkets, is there's a direct correlation with tenderness. Like the, mm-hmm. the dollar amount per pound of meat directly correlates to how naturally tender is the meat. And so your, quote, cheap cuts of meat are the ones that are going to be really tough unless you subject them to long, slow cooking processes. Yeah. 
But according to the author here in Eastern Cuisines, there is this richer history of chewy foods. And one of her key arguments for the enjoyment of chewy foods is that it kind of prolongs the tasting experience, mm. uh, which, which is interesting because on a basic level, you're working over the texture and flavor in your mouth much longer. Um, she argues that across East and Southeast Asian uh, cuisines, chewiness, quote, isn't just a common texture, but a powerful tool deployed to make food taste better. So this idea of stickiness or chewiness is kind of a, a flavor enhancer of sorts. Mm, that's interesting. Uh, something uh, this reminds me of uh, in this discussion is also uh, you've encased the you encounter these. I believe they're called uh, talk rice cakes. Um, they're these like chewy little rice cakes that you get in uh, various uh, Korean stews. Have you had these before, Joe? Yes, I think so. They're made with, well, I don't know exactly how they're made. I assume they're made with either rice flour or something or like mashed up grains of rice. But they are, they form like a solid white uh, puck sort of. And uh, yeah, they, they've got a really nice bouncy, chewy, springy texture, kind of like rice noodles, but but very thick. Yeah, and I can see where like having those nice chewy bits in this flavorful stew, uh, you know, it kind of forces you to to sort of uh, experience the flavors in that stew in a different way. Uh, so, uh, I, yeah, this this really made me rethink a lot of the ways that I'm encountering uh, chewy bits in various foods. Now, the usefulness of stickiness and sticky rice also goes well beyond uh, culinary uses. Uh, it also factors into sticky rice mortar an ancient, uh, apparently Chinese development that dates back a good 1,500 years. Um, we'll get into some of the, the, you know, the, the discussions about how far back this might go. But basically, it's a mixture of slacked lime uh, with sticky rice soup. I was reading about this in a, in a paper uh, from 2019 by Li and Zhang, published in the Journal of Archaeological Method and Theory. Um, this was, a, this was an interesting one. The authors looked at 378 ancient mortar samples from throughout China across 159 ancient buildings and archaeological relics. Uh, 219 mortar samples from 96 buildings contained organic components. 112 samples contained starch, 87 oil, 59 protein, 14 sugar, and 5 blood. Whoa. Now, on the, the blood point... Um, not going to go too deep into this here, but I think there might be a, a temptation for us to instantly think about, you know, uh, some sort of like sacrificial aspect. And you do see sacrificial um, rites associated with various uh, building traditions throughout the world, you know, uh, foundation sacrifices and so forth. But also you see a lot of these sorts of um, organic um, ingredients used in various things like dyes and paints, etc. So, you know, one thinks to like the use of organic um, bits from egg in, uh, in, in paints uh, that, that are used to, to create uh, various works of art. Mm -hmm. But um, the authors here point out that the, of course, the lime portion of mortar goes way back to uh, somewhere between 7,000 and 12,000 BCE in Palestine and Turkey. Various inorganic additives were used uh, throughout the history of mortar, such as volcanic ash, which was often added by the Greeks. But organic additives were used as well, including just, just about anything you could think of. Animal hair, plant seeds, plant fibers, egg whites, egg yolk, um, animal glue, fish oil, whale oil, all sorts of stuff. Now, Chinese use of lime mortar goes back a good 5,000 years, they say, but there's evidence of different additives being used at different points at different places. Sticky rice in particular pops up in tombs and pagodas 
dated to the Southern and Northern dynasties. This would have been uh, between the years 420 and 589. The starch content of their samples are directly linked to the extremely common practice of using sticky rice mortar. Uh, some of the samples included st uh, city walls. They also point out that while the Southern and Northern dynasties are generally considered the earliest possible time for sticky rice mortar to have been used in China, they claim to have found one starch sample from the Eastern Han dynasty uh, that would have been between the years 25 and 220, which, if accurate, would, would push that estimate back. All right. So why would you be adding food substances like sticky rice or any of these other things to the mortar you were using to build buildings? I mean, basically, it comes down to like trying to make a better mortar or things you can add to to increase the bond strength in the mortar. And um, and that seems to be the case here. Uh, a 2010 paper published in the American Chemical Society monthly journal, um, Accounts of Chemical Research by Yang et al., looked into the legendary strength of sticky rice mortar because there are you know, all these stories about how strong it was and how strong it still is, how well it holds up. There are like anecdotes about like modern bulldozers not being able to knock it down. And they found that, you know, first of all, it's the um, amylopectin that's the key ingredient just in, in the sticky rice soup that st helps strengthen the mortar. It acts as an inhibitor, controlling the growth of the calcium carbonate crystals, producing a compact microstructure. So this results in improved mechanical strength, makes it less permeable to water and more resistant to weather-related stresses. They also point out that it's it's key to recreate this sort of mortar for restoration work on ancient buildings. Uh, I hadn't thought about this, but they, they make the case that uh, because, uh, because mo modern mortar, of course, has come, uh, has come a long ways, and it can actually prove too strong, and it can damage older, softer bricks, which, hmm. of course, um, I'm, I'm not sure we're necessarily talking about situations where we're using mud bricks, but it makes me think back to our discussion of mud bricks on the show previously. Oh, interesting. But in this case, if they found it, it's the amylopectin, which is which gives the mortar the desirable quality here. So this is why sticky rice in particular would be useful because it's got the highest ratio of amylopectin, the lowest ratio of amylose. Yes. And therefore, apparently resulted in a just a superior mortar for a very long time. And, uh, you know, that again, frequently used in things like like walls and tombs and so forth, uh, city walls in particular. Uh, so defensive structures. The sticky rice is not just delicious. It's not just dippable and moldable. It keeps us safe. Yeah. So it's it's a it's it's fascinating to to try and sort of imagine these developments. You know, like how much of it is just let's try anything. Let's let's just experiment with adding different organic and inorganic ingredients to mortar to see what we can get. But also that kind of experiential level of like, well, look at what happens with this particular type of rice. Uh, we know how sticky it can get. We know how chewy it can get. Let's experiment with just with adding this to the mortar. Uh, it makes sense, and then it pays off. Gorgeous. Yeah, because well, you want your buildings to stick together, right? All right, well, maybe that is going to do it for part one of this series, but we will be back to talk about stickiness and sticky things more in part two. That's right. Uh, we already have some um, avenues mapped out for us here, but it's possible there's something we haven't thought of. So if there's a particular sticky topic uh, or sticky re stickiness related topic you'd like for us to discuss uh, to discuss on this, uh, this series, just write in. We'd love to hear from you. A reminder that Stuff to Blow Your Mind is primarily a science podcast with... Uh, 
regular core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays, but on Mondays we do a little Lister Mail. On Wednesdays we do a short form artifact or monster fact. And on Fridays we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird film on Weird House Cinema. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now, this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.